as we continue working through this wonderful letter from the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus. We are drawn into Christ-centered thinking over and over again. We'll begin reading this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 11. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have Heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Encapsulating principles are very important. They are valuable since they provide categories for our thinking. Uh, For example, one such statement is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It says that a teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him a question in order to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus teaches very clearly here that every commandment that God has ever given can be categorized as referring to that which means we are to love God or that which means we are to love our neighbor. So every single one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus says, may be encapsulated in this summary statement. That is, they can be summarized in two commandments, which is to love God and love people. This is the umbrella which every biblical command stands under. 
God set the pattern for this when he gave the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. The first four commandments fall under love for God, while commandments 6 through 10 have to do with loving our neighbor. And when the Bible says love your neighbor, it does not imply that we, li- we simply love those who live to the right of us or those who live to the left of us on whatever street that we live on. It refers to anyone in our lives whom we have been given the opportunity to interact with. That's pretty broad. So every person in your life is a neighbor, biblically speaking, and therefore is to be a recipient of love from you. Different expressions, obviously, different degrees, obviously, but love nonetheless. Even an anonymous person in need is a neighbor, as Jesus teaches us in his story of the Good Samaritan. But there's a real problem, and it's an insurmountable problem for us. That is, that natural man is incapable of loving God and loving others. That is, we cannot love God and love others without divine help doesn't come natural. Due to our sin nature, we are bent towards self-love instead of love for God and love for neighbor. We are bent toward making everything about us. We are bent toward bending everyone else toward our desires. In short, we are glory thieves. Sin nature strives to say, both verbally and non-verbally, look at me, love me, and everything will be well. And yet everything in God's law says, look at God, look at him, look at others, look at them, love them, love God. The Apostle Paul warns of the widespread unrestrained godlessness that will characterize the last days. And first on the list is self-love. He writes to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. That's a description of unrestrained godliness, excuse me, godlessness, that is going to characterize the last days. I think John MacArthur's illustration here is helpful. Self-love, he says, is the sewer pipe out of which all of the other expressions of depravity flow. And so the self-love that Paul speaks of there in Timothy, and which Jesus confronted as well, is that which characterizes the unsaved nature of man. And it cannot be cured simply by trying harder to love. Something has to change fundamentally at the core of our being. being. There must be a change in the disposition of our heart toward God and toward others. We must be made new. We must be born of God. 
And that's what over and over John is speaking to us about here in this letter. He's talking to us about true salvation, about genuine conversion in Christ, which requires a fundamental change at the level of our heart. And it results in a change of the posture of our heart toward God and toward others. In other words, when we get saved, we don't add Jesus to the list of the people whom we are called to love. Instead, through the new birth, the Holy Spirit accomplishes a fundamental shift at the level of who we are. We are made to be, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. And therefore, now there is this supernatural, powerful drive within us that moves us toward God and toward others. And this is a fruit of the Spirit. Past two Sundays, we've taken notice of John's stated purpose of writing this letter. That is, he wants us to be assured and secure in our salvation. He writes in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. That's the base core meaning of eternal life. It's a living relationship that begins here and continues after our death and goes on for eternity. So what John is doing here in these verses is he is, he is coupling his purpose in writing the letter with Jesus' definition of eternal life, which f- produces a love for others, love for God. So as we're thinking about different tests that he's giving to us here in this letter, in today's passage, it has to do with the test of love. So another test of true conversion is the test of love. And John addresses both categories of love, love for God and love for others. Showing again what Jesus said, that all of the commandments of God can be categorized as either love for God or love for our neighbor. And so what John is saying here is that As new creatures in Christ, we are expected to walk in his love. So this morning, there are two key responses that God expects from you. First, to walk in the love of Christ means you must align with the truth of his word through growing obedience. In other words, obedience to God's word is evidence that you know God. It's evidence that you love God. Look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. What, John? What do you mean? By this we know. By this we can be assured that we do know the Lord, and that is that we keep his commandments. 
So John is linking our assurance of salvation, not being able to look back in the past and remember when you prayed a prayer or when you walked an aisle or when you went forward at an evangelistic crusade, but he's linking it to what is going on in your life today. How are you growing in obedience to God. I mean, it's nice to be able to look back and remember things like that, but that is not the ultimate assurance of our salvation. That's not the ultimate source of our assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation comes from seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit's life being worked out in our lives here and now today in the present. That's why even Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us to add these Christian virtues to our faith so that we may be assured that we possess eternal life. And so John here is talking about our progress in growth in the Lord. Whoever says, verse 4, I know him. So in other words, whoever professes to be a Christian but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So whoever professes to be saved, and yet the overall thrust of their life is not really according to God's word, then their profession of faith is something that they themselves ought to be questioning. But, verse 5, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That is, it is made complete. Not that our obedience is perfected. That's not what it's saying. It's not that our obedience is perfect, but that the love of God is being perfected in us as we grow in the Lord, and his evidence of the Spirit's life within us is made known. By this we may know that we are in him, verse 5. See, God doesn't want us to guess. He wants us to know. Whoever says, verse 6, he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So ask yourself, is my obedience to God's word growing? Am I truly alive unto God? Or am I essentially the same person that I used to be, perhaps just a religious version of my old self? Or did God begin a new work within me, and that new work is making itself known through my increasing growth in obedience? So, John is not teaching perfection. He's teaching progression. Okay? Because all of us could look at our Christian lives and say, we don't obey God perfectly all the time, right? I mean, if you think you do, then you're deceiving yourself. And you just need someone who loves you enough to tell you the truth. That you're not perfect. But the general thrust of our life is what? That we're moving toward Christ's likeness. Because in this life, our obedience is going, always going to be imperfect. None of us perfectly obeys God all of the time. And yet, 
if we are trusting in Christ, then we are in Christ, who is the one who did perfectly fulfill the law in every way. And it's his righteousness that has been gifted to us. And so in Christ, God forgives our disobedience and progressively works out the new life that he implanted in our hearts at that moment when we were first saved. And that's why we have the assurances that we looked at last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can bring our imperfect obedience to God as an offering, and he cleanses the imperfections of it away and brings glory to himself, even through our lives that are not yet fully sanctified. That ought to be so encouraging to us. Sometimes we can fall into traps of perfectionism and And that doesn't really ever lead to biblical assurance. John's point is this then, that assurance of salvation does not stem merely from being able to look backwards to a profession of faith, but to look into your life and to see, okay, how has God changed me and how is he currently changing me? Do you see that the old things are fading away and behold, all things are becoming new? Do you see that evidence that you are a new creature in Christ? But this call to obedience is really a serious call, isn't it? I mean, it should sober us up. And we, we find ourselves asking, how, Lord, how, how can I do this? How can I obey Your word like this, so weak, so sinful, how can we do it? Well, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, where in John 20, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So again, Jesus is teaching The same thing. Well, John got it from Jesus. That's why John is teaching it to us here. That one of the hallmarks of genuine saving faith is a growing obedience to God's word. Imperfect as our obedience may be. Well, then he goes on to give us a wonderful encouragement and promise These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He is the one who helps us to obey God's word. This is the promise that Jesus gave to us. In fact, look at chapter 5 in in 1 John, in in chapter, uh, verse 3, chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, God's commandments are not too much for us to bear. 
Now, how could John write that? Well, he could write that because he knew that Jesus had kept his promise and Jesus had sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now indwells those who believe in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit who indwells us is the one who empowers our obedience. We cannot obey on our own. We have to be abiding in Christ as a branch abides in the vine. We get our strength, our energy, our empowerment from being connected to Christ who has given to us his spirit. But also the radical change that the gospel has made at the core of our being then results in a delight in God's word. It produces a desire for God's word. It produces a delight in hearing God's word. Even when some of the things that God tells us in his word are hard for us to hear, right? It's not all easy to hear, is it? And yet he's so patient and gracious with us. And so he says, I'm not going to just give you these commands, but I'm also going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you to be able to keep these commands. that's the first key response that the Lord wants us to hear and obey this morning. There's a second, though, in verses 7 through 11. That is, to walk in the love of Christ, you must abide in the light of Christ through practicing brotherly love. So, in other words, another evidence that we love God is that we love other believers, that there is a supernatural affection in our hearts that draws us toward others who know Christ. And by brotherly love, uh, John means here love in the family of God, that is, love between fellow believers in Christ. This is the brotherly and sisterly love that we find throughout the New Testament. And so look at verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John kind of plays some, some word games here to help us to understand some things about these commandments and what God has done in us to make it possible for us to obey his word. He says, I'm, I'm not giving you a new commandment. I'm giving you an old commandment. But then in the next verse, in verse 8, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. So what are you saying, John? Well, he's saying it's not a new commandment in the sense that it's not new revelation from God. God has always taught that we are to love him supremely, and then we are to love our neighbor as we already love Ourselves. So it's old in that God has always commanded his people to love one another. We've already noticed that in the Ten Commandments alone. Six of the ten have to do with loving others. Yet at the same time, he says in verse 8, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Well, what do you mean, John, that it's new? Well, he goes on, which is true in him. Who's him? Christ. So it's new in that the love of God has been manifested in a way that has never been 
manifested before Calvary. The supreme demonstration of the love of God is in Christ. And so this is true in him, and it's also true in you who know Christ, because in union with Christ, you now have this love of God that Jesus has. And because there's been a change in your kingdoms, as we looked at last week, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's a new commandment also in the sense that now you are part of a new kingdom. The kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness. So loving fellow believers is a new commandment in the sense that we now have the empowerment that makes it possible when we know Christ and his spirit indwells us. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that by loving one another, the world would know that you belong to me. So when we think of our witness for Christ, so often we think of our verbal witness. We don't often think as much about our visual witness. It's not just what we speak as far as evangelism is concerned, and it's not even totally what our church preaches forth in every way that we try to, to preach forth the gospel, but there's also something that takes place at the horizontal level when unbelievers come and get to know us, whether it's in a church service or some other way that they interact with us, and they, they scratch their heads and they wonder, what is it that makes it possible for those people to love one another? I mean, they're not all the same. They don't all dress the same. They're not all the same color. They're, they're not all from the same background. They're not all the this. They're not all the that. What is it? It's something supernatural. I remember how powerful this was when I first visited a gospel preaching church at the age of 19. And I could not get over the love that these people had for each other. I could not get over the strangeness of people hanging around for an hour after the service and, and loving on each other because for 19 years, I just went to church Sunday morning, checked off the box, and I was done for the rest of the week. And there was something that God used in that horizontal evidence of new life that softened my heart and opened my heart to the gospel. This is only possible because God is the one who teaches us how to love. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I long for that to be our testimony. And I love what God is doing among us, and I love how friendly our congregation is. But let us never think that we have gotten to the point where we love one another as well as we could. 
And we should be asking God, teach me to love. It's a new commandment in that believers are no longer in darkness, as he says here in verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So the person who professes to be a Christian and yet hates other Christians and doesn't really have a desire to be with other Christians can say all they want with their lips, but their life is what actually speaks reality, which is they are not saved, they are still lost, still trapped in darkness. That's what John is saying. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, verse 10. So loving one another as believers is evidence that we are now in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. So when we are walking in the light and when we are walking in love, then we are not causing one another to sin. We're being careful to watch our own lives and our own walk with Christ so that what we do doesn't lead another person into sin. This is an expression of Christian love, John says. But, here's the contrast again, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. Why? because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The person who professes to know Christ and yet hates other Christians is still in darkness. That's the reality, regardless of what their words may testify. Their life is what proves what is actually true. Now, this is a reoccurring theme in John's letter. Look, for example, at chapter 3. This theme of loving one another as evidence that we are walking in the light and that we have been born of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. See how he's, he keeps doing this over and over, saying this is an evidence of genuine conversion. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gives us a very practical illustration. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Answer, doesn't. 
In other words, if your expressions of love are only on your lips and not in your deeds, that's not genuine love, John says. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this is a reality that, that is produced by the new life that God plants within us through the gospel. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see how he makes this connection? The only way that we can love is if we are in a relationship with the one who is love. The love that John is talking about doesn't come from human manufacturing. It doesn't say, well, I should just become a more loving person, and so I'm just going to crank it up and become a more loving person. This is something that is happening by the work of the Spirit within us, within those who have been born of God and those who know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, how can you say you know God, whose very nature is love, if you don't love? In this the love of God was manifested, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. Go down a little further, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That's our testimony as believers, isn't it? If someone recognizes love in us, we understand in our hearts that the reason we love is because God first loved us. God has done a work within us. But if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, it's easy for people to say, oh, I love God, because there's no way to test that, right? Because God's invisible. And yet John says, yes, there is a way to test that. It's whether or not you love those who also belong to God. So this is God's way of, again, speaking to our hearts, helping us to look into the mirror of his word and to understand that walking in the love of Christ is evidence that we know him. It's evidence of new life in him. As imperfect as our obedience may be, we ought to be able to look at our lives and see God is alive, God is working, and I am becoming progressively more obedient to him. And this is a testimony, not to our power, but is a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. To love God and others is not natural. It requires the work of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul knew this as well, and this is how he prayed for the believers in Philippi. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection 
of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let me pray this for all of us as well. Father, as the apostle prayed these words for the congregation in Philippi, so I pray it for this beloved congregation that I am so blessed to be able to serve and to be among. Lord, you are my witness how I long for all here at Cornerstone with the affection that Christ has put within me. And Father, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more among us, in us, through us. And that that love would not be what the world defines as love, which has no real um, stature, but no, it would be the love that is mixed with knowledge and discernment so that we may be able to approve that which is excellent. And Father, we long to be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. And we know that our obedience to you, the obedience which you have produced in us by the power of the Spirit is not yet perfect. It is still imperfect obedience. But we thank you, Lord, that you are so pleased when we walk by faith. You're so pleased when we walk according to your word. And when we fail to do so, Lord, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all of our sin. And we confess our imperfect obedience to you, Lord. And we pray that the Spirit of God may work ever more powerfully in our lives so that we will walk more and more in the light and in the love of Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.